Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 744 with Chef Jamie Bissonette. You know, I think that if somebody wants to open up a restaurant and they really want to be unstoppable in what they're doing, get a committee together of people that you respect and bounce ideas off of them. Don't be set on any one thing. Don't be stubborn. Don't, don't, I don't know. There's just so many things that you don't do, but you don't know what you're not supposed to do till you've already done them. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. What is going on, Unstoppables? We have a great episode for you today. Chef Jamie Bissonette is joining us. He is a past guest on the show. He was episode 067. That was like almost or over six years ago. It's crazy. Uh, I got him back on the show to go deeper. I've evolved a lot as an interviewer, um, and I just wanted to get another crack at Jamie. And this is exactly what I'm talking about when I say going forward with Restaurant Unstoppable. I want to slow down. I want to get more intentional, and I want to, instead of add new relationships into my life, I want to make some relationships stronger with people that I just admire in the industry, uh, people that I know you would admire, people that you probably didn't even know that I interviewed because this was so long ago. You might be new to the show. So we got Jamie back on the show. And uh, in this episode, we talk a lot about the, the significance of networking and just getting out there and giving your time in exchange for knowledge and network. You guys don't understand how significant your network is. They say your net work is your net worth. And that cannot be more true. And I also love what came out of today's episode is just this, the sense of just like self-awareness and, um, you know, inner growth, I feel like is something that just kind of comes organically. And sometimes it takes years of sacrifice, years of giving yourself to the trade, uh, to, to really get self-aware and to then evolve and to start shifting your priorities more on relationships and balance. And I think that came out of today's chat too. Also, I want to draw your attention to the show notes. Uh, if you guys head over to the show notes, restaurantstoppable.com slash 744, uh, there's a link to saverestaurants.com. Uh, we want to make sure we get as many people clicking that link. When you click that link, you automatically generate a few fields. You can fill out those fields and a letter will be sent to your local representatives uh, to uh, kind of, you know, combine our forces into create awareness about how much help restaurants need. So uh, do take the time to click that link. And then lastly, before I hit play on today's show, I want to let you guys know that um, in the network, Jamie Bissonette is going to be joining us live on Monday, August 31st, August 31st at 2 p.m. Uh, for shop talk. And this is something that is new that I'm doing. So the idea behind shop talk is I literally want to give you guys the opportunity to connect with my guests, not necessarily in person, but live over zoom conferences. So the week their episodes go live, I'm going to say to them, Hey, just let us know when, when you're available, your convenience and we'll schedule a zoom call around that. And that's happening this Monday, August 31st at 2 p.m., which is why this episode is going live on Saturday. I want to make sure you guys all get to uh, realize that you get to connect over Zoom with Jamie to ask your questions. I mean, I feel like there's likely questions you guys wish I would have asked that I just don't have time to get to, or I just wasn't in the right frame of mind, but maybe you saw an opportunity to go a layer deeper. Uh, that's what this time is used for. So 
Uh, if you're interested in joining this live conversation with Jamie on Monday, the 31st at 2 p.m., here's what you got to do. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 744 and I'll link to a special link that will give you guys a 30 day trial to the network. Um, so you'll get access to this talk shop. Uh, whoever else is willing to do it in the next 30 days. Plus we have live workshops with some really great individuals. I'll fill you in on the commercial breaks on who those individuals are. But for now, here's the episode. I hope you enjoy it. All right. So with excitement, allow me to introduce to you back on the show for a second time. Jeff, Jamie, Bissonette. Jamie, are you feeling unstoppable today? Nothing can stop me. Now. <laughs> yes. So Collinsville, Connecticut native Jamie Bissonette is a graduate of the Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale. After cooking and eating around the nation and overseas, Bissonette landed in Boston in 1999 and worked around Boston before eventually joining forces with Garrett Hark- Harker to open Eastern Standard. Two years later, Jamie was recruited by Ken Oranger to open KO Prime. Uh, Oranger and Bissonette partnered to develop Boston favorites, Toro, uh, Copa, and a little donkey. And you opened, I think at one point, uh, three additional Toros, one in New York, one in Dubai, one in Bangkok. I'm sure we'll get into that. Uh, And man, if you guys want to listen to the original recording, it's episode 67. Jamie was great. He was a great guest. I'm green as hell in those episodes. So if you want to go back, it's on your own. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I'm warning you. They've come a long way. But uh, again, that's episode 67 head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 67 if you want to listen to that and then come back and join us and uh, i can't wait to dive in deeper to your story and really pull back the layers but let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you got for us pma man just gotta have pma positive mental attitude no matter what happens no matter what gets thrown at you just stay positive and you're gonna get through it those words have a lot of weight right now. Yeah. <laughs> Is that how you've gotten through it? I'm uh, trying yeah. to get through it. Yeah. Well, that's more current time. We'll uh, we'll eventually get to that in today's <laughs> conversation. But uh, you know what we gathered from the last interview, we we know that you're a graduate from uh, the Art Institute of uh, Fort Lauderdale. Uh, you're kind of a. a a troublemaker is kind of what I pulled up when you were younger. You're causing trouble. Uh, maybe, maybe not others. No, I, you know, I wasn't the best kid, you know, I didn't graduate high school. I was in and out of of a lot of trouble growing up. Um, I wasn't, you know, wasn't particularly bright or motivated. Uh, you know, I was just kind of meandering through everything. But when I really discovered that I could possibly cook for a living, I really got motivated to do that. So what was it exactly that motivated you? What was it about cooking that really drew you in? Yeah. You know, I've always loved food. Uh, growing up, all my memories involved food, whether it was going to the grocery store and sitting in the carriage with a, a big kosher pickle and some liverwurst that I could swipe through. I still think about peeling that white exterior off of the Mother Goose liverwurst when I was a kid or going to a friend's house to have roasted chicken or you know things that I just didn't experience at home. My mother was not, not the best cook. Uh, my father didn't start cooking till I started teaching him about a decade ago. Um, and I just, uh, everything I can remember is just loving food, loving, like learning how to pull out the drawers so I could climb up onto the counter and eat butter like it was cheese. Um, You know, I I can't remember 
any of the people who were the captains of our soccer teams, but I can remember which families brought the better oranges for halftime. <laughs> I think it says a lot. I love that, man. That's great. Uh, so you started living intentionally around 2017 is when you say, if I can go to school for the, uh, not 2000, you're at the age of 17, sorry, uh, when you wanted to go to Fort Lauderdale. What, what made you choose that school? I'm curious. Why, why go down there? Well, I didn't, I didn't, I got kicked out of high school and I didn't have uh, a high school diploma. So okay. I could only get into a few places with the GED. Uh, the Art Institute seemed like a great place because it was wicked far away from where I grew up in Connecticut. Um, so that was it. I was 17 years old. I got into school. It was, you know, I applied in early June. They accepted me in mid to late June. And I started culinary school July 6th or something like that. Okay. Is there a key mentor during this time in culinary school that's worth hovering over? Oh, man. During culinary school... I, I, I don't think I was even smart enough to recognize that somebody could have been mentoring me, but there was a chef named John Miller, who I've not been able to locate ever since school, who uh, he had, he was new to teaching, but he had been a chef, and he kind of explained a lot of the importance about networking and getting to know people and oh, being man. affable and, you know, things things that, like, I needed to hear as a teenager. Yeah, I'm so happy you're mentioning networking because listening to our first recording to prepare for today's conversation, um, that that advice you had on networking was really solid. I talked to you about how you got into this position to be around people like Garrett Harker and Ken Oranger uh, to get these opportunities and you, you had tons of great advice. Um, but networking was one of those really good ones. So what was it specifically he taught you about networking? Well, he just said, you know, he brought us to an event like a Taste of the Nation charity. And he said, well, you're here. You should get everybody's business card because this was back before cell phones. And you should get everybody's address because this was back before most people used email. Um, and you should keep in contact with people. You should call them. You should write them letters. You should, you know, show that you're interested and they'll be interested in you. And it, it, it was very helpful. Did you start doing that right away or did it take you a few? Because you said when you graduated, you were still kind of not quite there. <laughs> it took a few years of, of, of emotional, probably, uh, what's the word? Um, growing up maybe was it, or, I mean, we're all there in our 17s and eight. like how hard is it? To yeah. Do? I, I definitely lacked the maturity yeah. to know what the heck I was doing. And I definitely like heard what he said, but I didn't, I didn't listen to him until I was older and I got to reflect on things. But yeah, definitely. Nice. Um, so I know you were traveling around. Uh, how important would you say it is to, to travel? And what advice do you have for somebody who wants to travel? Uh, I know you spent some time in Paris. You were in California. You were in Phoenix. Why is that so important early in your career? You know, I say that the best thing that any young cook can do is to travel. You'll see different different things, whether it's a different perspective on how to look at food, different cultures, different ingredients, different everything. I mean, yeah. it's so important. <clears throat> and then when you are traveling, take take every path, not just the path you know that everybody else took and not just off the beaten path. You you just got to look everywhere. You know, go go everywhere, be curious. What's determining your path? Oh, I don't know. Um, like when I go to a new city, what determines my path is I start walking and then when I have to go to the bathroom is when I go inside. I don't know. I just kind of walk around until lost. you find it. Yeah, yeah I dig that. Um, so any key experiences during the come up, the, these early years where you're traveling to just kind of develop your palate and get perspective, any specific area that you think you transformed the most during that time? I think that uh, I learned a lot about how to, how to be alone and how to... Um, you know, how to push push myself a little bit. Um, 
you know, one of the things about traveling when you're young is you really don't know anything. Mm. Like, I didn't know my ass from my elbow. Um, How old were you when you were traveling? From my- I mean, I started touring with bands in, when I was a teenager, yeah. and then I moved to Florida when I was 17. Um, I was traveling around at 18, 19. To went off you were 22 to, when he came back to the, to the Northeast, right? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> it's all a blur. Yeah. I, mean, I was born in 77. I moved back to, uh, I moved to Boston first in 1997. Okay. I lived here for, for a little bit, uh, but I wasn't ready. I uh, moved back to Connecticut, stayed with uh, some friends, worked there for a few years. I moved back here in around 99. Okay. Um, and, you know, I just, I would say to anybody traveling, just ask everybody questions and don't think you know anything ask questions you already know the answers to mm-hmm. you know and then wait for the answers and if they're, if they're not yeah exactly if they're not your answers figure out why and find that perspective exactly yes. don't be so stubborn and don't think you're a know-it-all because yeah you know a lot of the younger cooks now even the ones that before covid were traveling around and staging places just for the experience they wanted to show off they wanted to, to tell me that they had the experience to know something that's great. I'm glad that somebody has that. But I don't care. Like, if you're coming to stage with me, I'm not bringing... You're not coming to stage from, you know, necessarily for you to teach me how another restaurant puts their cilantro in a container. You know? You're there to absorb. You're here to learn something. Yeah. If I want... You know, if people want to learn from you, they will ask. And I think that... I, I got that as a young kid because I was so shy. I just mm. didn't, I didn't know what to do. Um, and then as I got a little bit better and I got a little bit arrogant and cocky when I was really young, like 22, <laughs> thought I knew everything. And I, you know, spoke to hear myself talk sometimes and, you know, gave opinions where they weren't needed. That's not helpful. And I realize that now. Yeah, so the big lessons I'm pulling up as far as the appropriate way to stage, show up, absorb, ask questions, even if you know the answer, get that perspective and know that you're there to to learn, not to share what you know, uh, some of the, the key lessons. But you also mentioned um, that you learned how to be on your own. You learned how to be solo. And I think that's important advice because it's something that I've learned. I'm, I'm kind of going into this a little bit selfishly because I'm curious in how you learn how to be alone, what you've learned about how to be alone. Um, I spent the past two and a half, three years on the road recording for this podcast and it gets lonely when you're out there staging, getting out there. Just how, how do you stay positive when, when you have nobody to like, when you're working 16 hour days, five, six days a week, how do you stay positive? How do you not let that loneliness get to you? You've got to find your passion. You know, if you find uh, something that keeps you motivated and you know why you're doing what you're doing, you know what you're doing, you're traveling around and making podcasts, mm. you know how you're doing it. Do you know why? And if yeah. you know why, you're gonna you're gonna be able to acclimate. What was your why? My why was I just wanted I wanted to learn and I wanted to be a chef. I just wanted to be able to teach people. And in order to teach people, you have to learn. Mm. And I knew that I just needed to be a sponge. Awesome. So you came back uh, to the Northeast uh, around. You said you moved to Boston in 1999. Uh, at what point, because you, you you mentioned in multiple locations on the line, different articles I've read, that you've always admired Ken Oranger. At what point did Ken Oranger get on your radar? Uh, Ken, well, I mean, he, when he won the James Beard Award, uh, I was like, oh, wow, look at that guy. And then it turned out that his at-the-time girlfriend was my aunt's old college roommate. Okay. That uh, our neighbor growing up, who was friends with my uncle, who's only 10 years older than me, uh, who lived in Boston at the time, was a bartender at like an industry-known restaurant. He, they were friends with Ken. One of them had been roommates with him in college at Bryant. 
and there was just like all it was like all low roads lead to Canada. Yeah, he keeps on showing up in your life. Yeah, so I staged with him in the in I think two thousand, um, and we always remained friends. We okay. have always known each other. And when I uh, was the sous chef at a restaurant called Pigal, he came in. You know, not I wouldn't say once a month, but he came in a, you know a few times a year, and he always was complimentary. And then when we opened up Eastern Standard, he was a big supporter of it. Um, and I would see him out. Like I would see him at a bar late night at Silvertone where my uncle bartended and him and I would have a couple of drinks and yeah. we would talk about, you know, Bernard Loisseau or like Mincer Cooking or, you know, some old French chefs that not a lot of other people knew. And, you know, we kind of clicked that we both had this like fanatical, like we wanted to research and learn. Mm. Um, and we became friends. That's awesome. So it was 2005. You joined Eastern Standard. You got to Boston in '99. What was going on in that six years? Were were you being were you intentional? Because you said it was around the age of 22 when you got your shit together. Maybe you use other words from what I gathered. Um, and you really started being more intentional. So take us to that point when you're 22. You, you know what you want to do. You've been traveling, and now you're trying to create a name for yourself. Oh man, it wasn't. It wasn't even that much of a plan. That's so you giving me so much more credit than I deserve. What was it then? Oh man, well I, I had had some run-ins with the, the law. Um, my resume had a, a, a sizable gap because of it, and um, just I was living back in Hartford, Connecticut, with a lot of my old friends. I had some friends from out of town that were living with me, and we were just a bunch of dumbass townies, just. <laughs> You know, I thought that I worked at one of the best restaurants around and I learned so much. I worked at Brico and West Hartford Center. Billy Grant taught me so much. Um, and I plateaued. I just wasn't learning anymore. And I. How long were you with him? I was with him for about two years. Okay. And, uh, and it wasn't that I wasn't learning because he didn't have it to teach. I wasn't learning because I hit a rut. I, mm. I needed to be pushed a lot more and I needed to get out of my everyday life. I well, just was in a, I was in a bad cycle. Yeah. What was it, this rut? What was the cause of this rut? If you had to distill it down to something. Oh man, I've been going to a psychotherapist for a while about <laughs> trying to figure that out. Oh man, the root of that rut is so much, so much of just who I am as a person. But at the end of the day, I just wasn't happy. And I realized that it was a lot of my surroundings. Yeah. You know, raising tides raise all ships, but I was somewhere where it was, you know, permanently low tide for me. And uh, it started to stink. More important question How do you get out of the rut? Once you recognize that you're in a rut, you're in a, in a space, like what's the, how did you get out of it? I had a very big uh, brush with the law again and thought that it was going to be the end of my uh, freedom. And I realized that I was surrounding myself with uh, bad activities and I was just being a real prick and didn't have much positive going on in my life. I needed a change of pace. Uh, so I said, uh, you know, at this, I'm just going to move back up to Boston. I'd lived there once before and I'm going to, you know, recommit myself to just cooking. And I came up here and did that. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I, I have no idea what the details of the story are, but some, they say you're the average of the, the X amount of people you spend most of your time with. Right. Um, so maybe what you needed at that time was to get around a, a, a crowd of people who had the same vision for where they wanted to go. Right. That vision of, of climbing the ladder and, and getting to the top of the hospitality game. Uh, do you think when you got out of that situation in Hartford and you went to see so in Boston at this time where there's probably more and I'm making a lot of assumptions right now. I get that, but maybe a lot of more driven uh, hospitality uh, uh, 
culinary focused people that are like there to make this their life. Do you think that that kind of helped pull you being able to, you know, tie your, you know, I don't know, hit your, your, what's the word trolley to something? Maybe perhaps a little bit of that, but I think a big part of it was just me. It, I can't say that it was me being surrounded by other people there or here that made me change. It was me realizing that I was in a cycle and I could have been working with Jacques Pepin and Thomas Keller when I was living in Hartford, Connecticut, and I don't think it would have it would have done anything for me. I just knew I needed to get away. I needed to break. I needed to to cut some ties with uh, some bad things in my life. Got you. So you got to Boston. What changed? I mean, you cut those ties, but did anything else change when you got to Boston? Yeah, I got to Boston where my rent went from being like you know three hundred dollars a month to like a thousand dollars a month. Um, I took a pay cut because I had been working at you know great restaurants, but I'd worked for there for a long enough time that I worked my way up. But I moved to a new city, or I had to, you know, I had to make my bones all over again, and uh, I just worked a lot. Yeah, um, you said you were there for two years. Um, is there like a, a sweet spot that you recommend uh, line cooks or people on the on the come up spend in one location to get the, the right amount of experience, but not burning bridges, leaving too soon? Yeah, I mean, I always say that if you're going to take a job, you should stay there for at least a year so you can see how that restaurant cycles for all four seasons. Mm. Um, I don't know. I mean, do what feels right. You know, some people, you get maxed out in a location. Even people who come and work for me after six months, they, they just realize that it's not right for them because they want something else. And it's not always about learning. It's Sometimes it's about culture. It's, sometimes it's about your commute. Sometimes it's about other things that are happening in your life lives. So I would just say, you know, take everything into, you know, into account and communicate with your, with your mentor or your boss. And if you have a relationship where you can say to your chef, Hey, this is what's going on. And this is what I'm thinking about doing. You should have those conversations, even if it's only been a month since you started. If you have somebody that cares about you and you care about them, then you should have that open communication. I think that's so important. I think that uh, one of the, the messages I like to communicate to the people that listen to the show is it's your, dro- your job to drive people out of your restaurant by giving them the tools and services they need to get beyond you, right? But the th- what ends up happening is when you do that, every once in a while, there's that person that wants to grow with you, that wants to stay. And like, People are going to go on, right? But having, but don't don't hold back from letting people know what your vision is from your for yourself because that's you got to share your vision for people to help you get there, right? Mm-hmm. Do you want to mm-hmm. reflect on that? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like uh, you know we're all on the same pirate ship, and that pirate ship, I'm the captain of this one, and we're going from here to a destination unknown, and it's all about the journey. And while we're going along, there's going to be people that want to stay on our pirate ship and be pirates with us. And there are other people that are going to want to get off when we stop somewhere else. And when it's your time to get off the boat, you can either get off the boat or sometimes you get told you have to walk the plank. Yeah. You know, and uh, <laughs> when you, you know, you know, when you know. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, what came out of our in our first episode that like you want people to tell you where they're going, what their plans are, because you're the kind of owner, the kind of boss that's going to say, oh, why well, I, I might be able to help you with that. Right. I might be able to connect you. I might know somebody who might be able to get you there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the goal is to have a relationship with somebody, whether it's a food runner or a back waiter or a dishwasher or a prep cook or whatever, who's saying, hey, I'm you know, I'm putting in my notice. I'm moving on. I'm, I'm moving to another city. City, I'm moving to another restaurant. I always ask, well, what are the tools that I can help you with between now and when you leave? If I don't ask a cook that, it's probably because I'm not not upset that you're leaving. 
All right, the secret's out. So um, if you could like ho- hover over one location between getting to Boston and starting at Eastern Standard, I know Garrett Harker is a rock star. I'm sure there's going to be a ton to unpackage during the two years you spent with him. But any other key mentors, any other key experiences on that come up do you think help you kind of get on the right path, the right tra- trajectory? Yeah, I mean, when I first got here, I worked for uh, Andy Husbands and with Jason Santos at uh, Tremont 647. Yep. Um, there, Andy was doing so many like philanthropic like guest chef dinners. I got to meet chefs from all over the city okay. and got to network. And that was when like what John Miller said to me kind of clicked. And I was yep. like, oh man, you know, I was work- living in Boston and the guy that I like admired the most, Ken Oranger, was doing a guest chef dinner at the restaurant with me, you know, six months later or something like that. And I was already learning. So I ended up taking a job as the pastry cook and part-time line cook at Pigal, a restaurant that had just opened up. It was right towards the end of uh, my first year in Boston. I ended up leaving... Um, Tremont 647 and taking a sous chef job with Mark Fally, who was a really big influence for me. He, he like taught me so much about how to, how to be a chef and how to push and how to be scrappy and how to, how to, you know, how do you push? That's, that's a, I think that's a great conversation right there. Cause you got to find that line where you can't push too hard. You don't want to push people out. You don't want to push people beyond their breaking point. Uh, but you want to find that sweet spot, right? So how do you, how do you find that, that sweet spot of pushing people to the right limit. You know, I learned how to be pushed by by Mark a lot, and it was great. He definitely put the pressure on. Uh, but I think as I've gotten older, I've realized, and when I try to like teach our chefs how to push other people, and when I think about pushing, just say everybody's an individual. There's no one size fits all, and you need to really develop a rapport with the people on your team. You know, Bill Belichick isn't going to push Tom Brady the same way that he might may have pushed David Andrews, but maybe he did. You'd have to ask those two people, mm. and that's kind of how what I say is, you know, one person might might benefit from being pushed more and more one way. One person might need to be pushed, then coddled, then pushed again. So strong leaders adapt to their teams to make their teams stronger. Uh, so that's what I would say. That's great advice. And uh, I'm really curious of this, going back to this idea of collaborating and networking, um, what is the key there? What like is, is it just getting more involved with these collaborative dinners, these, these pop-ups, guest chefs? Like if we're somebody listening to this right now and we want to bring more exposure to our team by getting other people in, like what's the best way to approach these collaborative approach, these, these dinners. And then once we're, we're in those situations, like what's the best uh, advice for um, really making the most of the, the, the people that are there right in front of you, those, those relationships. You know, if you respect somebody and you don't know them, inviting them into your home and your restaurant to cook a dinner with you is a great way to say, Hey, I see what you're doing in Tennessee. I don't know you. I, I like you a lot. I follow you on social media. Your food looks great. Would you want to come cook with me? And you get to meet people that way. Yeah. And it's great. And then when you're doing that, they might say, oh, yeah, I'm going to bring you to my restaurant. And then you go to their restaurant and you meet one of their friends from another city and you keep in contact. And you just, you know, when you, you just start to, I don't know, it's almost like being in tour, yeah. on tour with a band where you just like the more bands you play with, the more people you know, and then the more collaboration bands you can have. Have you ever seen anybody be too aggressive? with like having a big name chef come in and somebody is like, Oh, like, I love what you're doing. Like, can I get your number? Can we, can I come hang, like meet you when I'm in your city? Or like, is there a line to respect? I don't know. Probably. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, I've definitely had a couple, uh, 
a couple instances where maybe I was a little bit too comfortable with somebody right off the bat when I was younger and thought that they were my friend, not just somebody that I got their number and I cooked with. And I'm sure that's happened with me, but yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, All right. So um, any other key lessons before we start talking about your time at Eastern Standard? Yeah, I mean, my key lessons when I was younger were, and I, I still say this to everybody, is just as you travel, buy cookbooks and mm. read read about what you love. If you're traveling as a chef and you're not learning about food on your own in your own free time, you, you're probably doing yourself a disservice. Gotcha. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. What's up, guys? So normally I would be promoting sponsors during this time, but because of COVID-19, it's been very tough trying to find sponsors. I know I'm not alone on this, and I'm using this time to kind of just keep you posted on what's going on within the network. But good news regarding sponsors, we do have some very interested folks going into Q4. Until then, uh, we're just going to use this space to keep you guys posted on what's going on inside the network. So obviously, I said Jamie's going to be joining us on Monday, the 31st at 2 p.m. If you're enjoying this episode, head over to the show notes, Restaurant Unstoppable dot com slash seven four four and find the link that says join the network. If you use that link, you get 30 days free, which means you can join us for this live Q&A with Jamie on Monday at 2 p.m. for free and every conversation that's happening in the network for the next 30 days. Uh, and we have Jerry Jeremy Julian from the restaurant technology guys coming on to talk about the five systems that every restaurant needs and the tech you can invest in to use in for those systems. We have Ari Weinswag coming back for a workshop last time I was talking about visioning this time we're talking about anarchy and business and his thoughts on that and then we have a Zaid Ayub coming uh, on the 16th of September to talk about tr- uh, converting your commissary into direct to market food pr- preparation space so if you're interested in these topics come join the network we'll see you there so we're back and we're just getting to the point where you uh now you're, you're joining Eastern Standard, uh, Garrett Harker. This is your first executive chef role. Take us to that point in your life. What's going through your mind? Are you shitting pickles? Are you excited? Like, what's happening? <laughs> yes. I, I, so I was leaving. I had left uh, Pigall with Mark, um, and I kind of was a nomadic for a little bit. I was helping out at uh, like an Irish pub. I was helping out at a Vietnamese restaurant. I was picking up catering gigs, and I was just kind of being a mercenary and you know helping anybody that I could. Um, Time out. That is another key element right there. Um, when, when we were just talking about networking, right? Um, just helping out, just being places and saying, "Hey, I'm here. I'm a, a warm body who has good knife skills. Like, how can I be of service to you?" Right? And just being of value to other people. Yep. Um, I just had to bring that to the surface. Do you want to reflect on that? Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna do that remember that you're helping out somebody else and they're also helping you by giving you money. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to go help somebody and I learned this from uh, trial and error, don't go in there thinking that you're going to change something. Don't go in there and tell a chef or, or a cook or an owner how to reorganize their walk-in. If you're only going to be there one day a week, go in and do what they ask you to do and help out and keep your opinions to your friggin' self. Unless they ask for your opinion, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's usually a good, like, if they ask, then by all means. But there's a saying that's like, don't, 
you know, I can't remember it, but the, the, the gist is like, if you have opinions, that's great, but people don't want to hear them unless they ask for them. That's, so right. that's a good rule of thumb. Yeah. Cause um, you never know who, what somebody's going through, you know, like if a chef has just got so much going on and you're there helping out one day a week and that's the one day that they know that they have somebody skilled who can go do a couple projects so they can unplug. Maybe it's build Legos with their kids and come in later or run to the farmer's market or do payroll. And to have somebody coming in, giving their opinion, you're you're making yourself not not yeah. useful. Now, was it Rob that you said you were working for the gentleman before Eastern Standard, or like the the guy who taught you about um, networking? Uh, networking? No, it, was, it wasn't him. It was the guy, that was your your teacher. Who was the guy you're working? The, uh, there was a chef that you said you worked for after husbands. I worked for Mark Fally. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, what made you want to leave that? I think that's what I was curious. Like, what made you want to leave? Like, because it sounds like he was teaching you a lot. You were, were you the chef de cuisine? Was there not a ceiling? Did you hit a ceiling there? Was that what was going on? Yeah, I was a sous chef with him, and I was also the pastry chef, and we, you know, we worked together for quite some time. Okay, um, it was just time for me. It was time for me to move on. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So, what was it about Eastern Standard that drew you into it? Well, man, what a story this is. So I was working with a, a kid for years at Pigall, at Pigall, uh, my friend Sean, and he had a girlfriend, and his girlfriend was slated to had worked with Garrett at B and G, and then after they had both left Barbara Lynch, they were talking about doing something together, um, and she said, "Oh, Sean's friend Jamie, he's really driven." And the one thing that I used to always say is I'm not going to be, if I walked into a room with 20 chefs, I could tell you I wasn't the best chef in the room, but I would be in the top five of the hardest workers. I would, oh, I would always stay in clean. I would, you know, I would always come in early. I would bust my ass. I never, you know, never called in sick. I had always made sure that I was valued as, as an employee, even if I wasn't the best cook because I had, you know, the, the best ethic, the mm-hmm. best worth ethic. So I think that, that that reputation got me a consideration. So I did a tasting and I met Garrett. And I'd met Garrett a couple times. You know, I used to go to Abe and Louie's on Christmas or Thanksgiving and sit at the bar and he would be there often with, you know, with friends eating and we just got along. So he gave me a tour of the spot. We talked about food. He asked me what I was into. I told him that I was really into Fergus Henderson. And I wanted to do whole animal cooking and offal and that I was working on my charcuterie experience and I was pretty competent. Um, I wanted to do a lot of charcuterie. He wanted all of those things. And we just talked about this restaurant and what it could be. And, you know, we thought it was, we never thought it was going to be what it, what it was. It was pretty wild. We thought it was going to be, you know, maybe doing like 150, 200 covers a night, this French brasserie type thing. And uh, I think our friends and family, we did 150. And the next day we did 200 and then we did 300. Damn. And then all of a sudden the Red Sox were back in town and, it was a blur. <laughs> so what was it reflecting back to 2005 in this, this two years from 2005, to 2007, um, reflecting back at how Garrett ran his business and led his team and how you ran the back of house and led your team. What was the, what was going on that was right that made it work so well? I mean, I don't know if it did work so well. <laughs> um, I mean, we certainly made a splash by by just trying to do a lot, and it wasn't it wasn't just Garrett. It was, it was Garrett. It was Gwen who didn't stay much longer than a year, but her personality brought people in, and we had an all star staff of people that Garrett had known that had worked at Number Nine Park, or people that I had worked with over the years, and 
we just put together like it was like the bad news bears of restaurant people and everybody had just such a a following and a drive that it, it just it couldn't it couldn't not work yeah. is, is how I looked at it and there would be nights where I'd be there to one o'clock in the morning hoping people would come in for late night and we would do one cover yeah but we never closed early yeah and There'd be nights where somebody would call in sick and I'd have to work, you know, 40 hours in a row to do an overnight room service slash breakfast shift. And it was just, you know, learning, learning about that and pushing and pushing and pushing myself. And man, we made so many mistakes, though. I can't wait to get into those mistakes. But one thing that I have picked up on is the significance of having roots in a city, Uh, especially if you're going to open your 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 own place and you you spent five or six years on the come up working staging uh traveling to different restaurants and partnering with somebody like garrett harker who was working with barbara lynch you know like if you have roots in an area like when you go and open your own place you can bring an army with you you know and, and it's so hard especially today to open a restaurant with very little experience or move to a new city where you don't know people and try to put together a team like how much more difficult would it have been to execute what you guys did at Eastern Standard if you didn't have that army of people, that network that you were talking about? Probably a lot harder. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes I look back and we made it so hard on ourselves by just being so unprepared. Okay. Well, yeah, let's get into some of those mistakes you're talking about. Like what, reflecting back, knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently then or what could you have done better then? Um, I needed to slow down and realize that I wasn't good. I wasn't good enough. Um, I needed, I needed more experience. I needed, what weren't you good at? I just, uh, you know, I knew what I knew. I, I had a couple of tricks up my sleeve, you know, and I, I, I read an article, I think Evan Funky wrote it, uh, where he said, you know, I'm going to paraphrase, but it was something like, oh yeah, you get this cook who's worked at a couple of restaurants, has had a great job as a sous chef running one really great place, staged here and there, understands how to plate some things, knows how to do some ordering. But I wasn't ready to be a leader, mm. you know, and I, I opened up this restaurant without all the experience that I should have had. I think I had just turned, was that, was 27 almost, your, 28? Your first executive chef role. Yeah, and it was just, I just didn't know what I was doing. So, but I made up for it with, with my my work ethic and working seven days a week. And, you know, I didn't take no for an answer. And it was hard, you know. So with the leadership skills you've developed since... 2005 over the past whatever 15 years um reflecting back at how you might have handled some of those situations those those leadership situations how would you handle them differently today with the man you are today the lessons you've learned today about leadership oh man i don't it's hard to say it's like the butterfly effect right yeah i go back and change that and what happens if you know right now i maybe i'd be an attorney true knows yeah (laughs) it's it's really hard to to say but i guess Anger was my biggest, my biggest hurdle to get over is my temper. And mm. uh, I had come up working in industries where the people that I respected yelled at me. So when I got to be the person that other people respected, I thought I had to yell at them. Mm. And I, I perpetuated this like systemic anger and violence in our industry that I'm now embarrassed about, to be honest. I, I'm sad, but you don't know what you don't know. And I feel like we are a byproduct of what was taught. It's, it's that, it's that nurture, like nature and nurture, you know, some of it's, you just have no control over the nature and then nurture. You really don't have that much control over too. It's what you knew. It's, it's how you were taught how to lead. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are so many factors at play, but at the end of the day, I would have learned that had I just been a little bit more experienced and I waited, I would think I should have been a line cook longer than I was. I, sh- I shouldn't have rushed into being, 
wanting to be a chef so young. So it sounds like now um, you've been able to kind of wrangle in your anger when it doesn't get away from you as easily as it used to. What happens when you feel it swelling, when you feel it coming on, when you're, when you're, you know, clenching your teeth and you want to go there, how do you take yourself away from jumping off that cliff? Just take a deep breath, man. Yeah. Yeah. You just, you know, I meditate every day and mm. just try to stay positive. When did you start meditating? When I was 15. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, any advice on that and how that serves you with keeping it cool? Hey, if you can't be comfortable sitting alone in your own body, thinking about how comfortable you are in your body, you cannot be comfortable in the world. Mm, I love it. Um, any other key lessons on business uh, that you took? I mean, Garrett Harker, uh, great restaurant tour. Um, did he teach you anything? Yeah. Garrett taught me that empathy is so important and that, you know, the guest isn't always right, but the restaurant's not always right. And then working together, you have to find a middle ground where everybody seems satisfied. And that means that every individual is an individual and every table is an individual table. So there's no one size fits all answer. And it, it really opened my eyes up to being more of a hospitality driven chef than I had been before. Uh, didn't stop me from running that restaurant like I was a tyrant, but you know, looking back, I learned so much about that. Any other key lessons with Garrett Harker before we move on to you uh, and Ken Oranger? Yeah, I mean, Garrett believed in me. I, I still I don't know why, but when I speak to him about it, and I'm like, gee, why, why me? He says, you just had something, that, you had something, and you had a passion. And he says, I knew you weren't ready. And I, you know, I've actually one time I said, when we first opened, I go. Garrett, if I'd known this restaurant was going to be this busy, I don't think I would have taken this job. And he said, if I'd known this restaurant was going to be this busy, I definitely wouldn't have hired you. <laughs> and I, and like, I take that as a compliment. Like, you know, but how did you grow up reflecting back at this time? Cause you definitely, it definitely had a transformative effect on you. If you could look back at that time, that two years with Eastern Eastern standard, how did you come out of that stronger? Uh, incredible fear of failure. Mm. So you came out of that stronger because of your fail, your fear of failing at Eastern Standard or going forward failing or both? Fail, failing at Eastern Standard, which, you know, when I left there, I left there with a two star review, a couple other like ich reviews. Um, the restaurant was respected by people in the industry, but it wasn't a culinary destination. Like what I was doing there with food was serviceable and some things were great and some things were mediocre. I just needed more training and um, I needed to slow down. I just really needed to slow my roll, as they say. Yeah, I think that's really incredible advice. I mean, like, what do you mean by slow down? Like really kind of paint that picture. Like what were you doing? What does slowing down look like? So at the time, like people were asking me to teach classes at Boston University, which I was doing. And they were asking to come stage with me to learn about cooking and like asking me how I thought about food and how I came up with ideas. And I realized that I, I just... I wanted to be asking those questions, not answering them. Mm. And I started talking to my friends and I started talking to Andrew Holden, the general manager. Um, and I kept telling, we kept talking about, about Ken Oranger, who was still my friend, but Andrew had just worked for Ken for many years at Clio. And I always said, I said, you know, if there's one chef that I would want to work for, I would just really want to learn from Ken. And then, uh, serendipity <laughs> being what it is, Ken called me, uh, you know, a couple months later and said, Hey, was this guy you were talking to Andrew, Andrew Holden? Yeah. D so did he ever reach out to Ken that you weren't aware of or did it no. just, was it no, just, he didn't. 
Interesting. Yeah. So here he is in your life again, right? Yep. Um, and you did try to join his team at one other point. You said it didn't work out. Was the timing wrong? I wasn't ready. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I okay. started I started at Clio a bunch back in like late late nineties, early two thousands. And uh yeah, I loved the kitchen. I loved I loved the times that I got to spend in it. But So two years in with Eastern Standard, he reaches out to you, what's he say? Well that's great. He calls me and uh, I had a cell phone and I had just caused a fire because we had bought this new cooler and it didn't have the right plug. It was before all the GFI stuff. And uh, I knew it didn't have a ground in the pl- where I wanted to put it, so I broke the ground off, <laughs> and I plugged it in anyways, and it was fine for like a week, and then uh, eventually it started an electrical fire. Oh. So I was like, man, I am get- I'm in so much trouble. The, the hotel is going to kill me. Garrett's must be Garrett's going to be so pissed. I was like, oh man, what am I going to do? I've been like thinking about quitting. I'd been just thinking I was burned out. I burned myself out. My phone rings and it's Ken. He goes, hey, Jamie, it's Ken Orger. Do you have time to talk? I said, yeah, sure. He's like, so, and he tells me about this new project. And he says, can you meet me at Starbucks tomorrow morning and we can talk? And I met him the next day and we started talking. How excited were you? Oh, man, I was so excited. <laughs> I bet, man. I, I can see it in your face right now. I couldn't have been more excited. And uh, that was like the beginning. That was the beginning of it. Yeah. Nice. Um, so what was the vision? Like, I mean, were you guys like, what, what did that conversation look like? Were you guys painting it out? Like, what did it look like then? And I'm sure it evolved over time. Well, we, we just talked about me, you know, running this restaurant that was in a hotel. And I think he thought of me because he liked some of the food I did. He knew that I was passionate. And uh, I think that he recognized that he could train me mm. and make me better. Which... What was it about you that made you trainable? I mean, I, th- I think I have one idea. Um, like you a, wanted to learn. You were out to learn. Like you just had this kind of revelation of like, I'm sick of being asked the questions. I want to ask the questions. I want to learn. And anybody who's hungry for knowledge is trainable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I recognize all that thing, all of that now. In the moment, I don't, I don't know. I knew how to articulate it quite so well. So Ken's Ken seeing that in me before I recognized what was happening yeah. it was pretty rad yeah that's pretty awesome um so this was uh ko uh prime right mm-hmm. um what was it like working there to take us through this is your dream working for can oranger oh, maybe maybe that was a little was it the dream there was a lot of great that we got to do with that restaurant yeah. we got to build another team i got to bring a lot of people with me there and it was it was there was a lot of fantastic things yeah and uh, you were only there for a year, right? Um, I think a year and a half. Yeah, and then you went to Hope in Toro, correct? Toro was already open. Okay. Um, yeah, there was a lot of uh, variables with that restaurant that uh, didn't didn't mm, I didn't agree with, and they didn't agree with me. I guess with Ko. No, not Ken, or but Toro. The, just the Ko Prime. No, Ko Prime. Yeah, there was just some variables that I didn't have the maturity to deal with. I think, um, and. All in all, I I just needed to leave, and I realized that. So I I just yeah I needed to. My temper got in the way a lot, oh, okay. and you know it's a it's a union property. So working within a union takes a little bit of maturity and patience that I was lacking, and having people not not 
work in the way that I had understood that kitchens worked that, my entire career. This and that hustle that we were I just, familiar uh, with. Well, there were some people that hustled fine. There, it was it wasn't like you can make a blanket statement. I can't just say unions yeah. are bad. Yeah, I just didn't. That particular right one you. didn't work out well for for me in gotcha. the way that I ran a restaurant because I was still a child. I turned thirty with when I was working at Ko Prime. Okay, I just. Uh, and I, I realized that. And I was going through a, a weird time. I had been married for about a year. Um, my wife wasn't happy. And um, so we decided we wanted to move to Charleston. Okay. Charleston, South Carolina. And on my birthday, I called Ken. He said, oh, I can't talk. Let's talk on Saturday. So I called him on Saturday, which was two days later. That was his birthday. <laughs> and I told him that I, uh, I was like, I think I want to give my notice. And I want to give like three to six months because I know, you know. And, uh, but I, I don't think I want, I can't work at the hotel anymore. Um, and it was about two weeks after I'd gotten into an argument with one of the food runners. And I think I picked him up by his neck. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> tried to use the, uh, the kitchen door as a trampoline and, <laughs> with his body. Still feel bad for that, man. Sorry, Jorge. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I was like, yeah, maybe I'm giving my notice right before I'm going to get fired anyway. Um, Ken never said I was going to get fired, but I still have the feeling that Kimpton, the, the hotel property manager, was going to fire me. Okay. So um, you end up uh, – so wait, you said you want to quit, you want to fire, or you, you want to move on, you want to go someplace, you're thinking about Charleston. That didn't happen, or did that happen? What, what 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 did the conversation? How, or let me start over. So how did the conversation go? Because you didn't leave. Did he give you more opportunity? What what stuck? What made you stick around? So I'm on the phone with Ken, and I said something to the effect of, "Hey man, I don't know how to say this. I love working with you. I just I can't work at the hotel anymore. It's just it's you know it's it's killing me, and I'm not happy. And you know I, I you know my my at the time wife Courtney and I are thinking about moving out of the city." And he said, oh, but what if I make you my business partner at Toro when we try to open up more restaurants together? It came out of his mouth like that quick. <laughs> like he had it planned all along. Yeah, yeah, so like, you know, looking back, he totally fucking knew that yeah. I was going to quit. And he totally fucking knew that, uh, you know, that I was broken. Like, and he just hit it with me. And I was like, wow. And my whole body, I got like tingly. And I was just, like <laughs> smiling. And I was like, yeah. And awesome. I said, yeah, let me ask my wife. <laughs> and I'm assuming she how, said no. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> she said, "I don't think so. I really want to live by the ocean. I really." And I turned into a bad husband and said, "But I really want to do this. This is my career." And we stayed and uh, got divorced. <laughs> well, I mean, that's actually something that came out of our first conversation. Um, relationships, looking back, like one of the things you would have done better. So you would have put more energy into friendships and relationships. And that's one thing you admire about Ken Oranger is that he's been able to do that. Yeah, he's really good at that. And uh, yeah, I mean, Courtney and I are friends now. And she actually lives with her husband and two kids in Charleston, South there Carolina. There we go. So Everything worked Everything out. Everything worked out well. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm remarried and happy. So Great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy good. to hear it. Yeah. Uh, so what was that transition like going from, from executive chef to owner? Like, How did things change for you? Uh, going from from chef of a restaurant to being a partner at a restaurant, it was weird because I was going in there to lead a team of people that kind of knew me and they knew that I, me from KO Prime. And I'd done a couple guest chef dinners at Toro with them. Um, and Toro was just about two years old. So I was kind of coming into a, an interesting thing. Um, 
paint the picture of, of the restaurants under Ken's, um, like at this time he, he had Toro, he had Uchi, correct? Uh, KO Prime, um, Cleo? Yeah, so at the time it was Cleo and Uni. Um, oh, sorry, Uni, And then KO you. Prime. Um, and Toro had, had just, you know, had been open for a little bit. So it was those. And then La Verdad, a Mexican taqueria okay. over on Lansdowne cool. Street. What was it like? Uh, like, I mean, I feel like, and maybe this doesn't pertain to you, everyone's different, but I feel like a lot of people who get into this industry have this vision of their dream restaurant, the, the first restaurant they're going to be an owner in. But you, you were, you came on as a partner. You didn't, you weren't a part of the visioning process of Toro. What was that like? Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a struggle. Like I felt like I needed to change things just to change them and make them mine. And I got very stubborn and like, you know, and then at the same time, like, Ken had this restaurant that he had opened up that was in this vision that he had from all of the time he had spent in Spain. And it didn't always, we didn't always add up and there was some serious conflict. That was like my next question. They always say no two chefs in one kitchen, right? So you have two chefs, two chefs who are James Beard award-winning chefs. Not at this point for you. Nope. Not yet. Not yet. But two serious chefs in a kitchen. How did you guys, like, I mean, I think partnerships are crucial in the restaurant industry. Being able to to manage the relationship, uh, you know, your your partnership relationship. I keep on punching the mic today. Um, The partnership relationship, How? what is your advice for, for skirting that type of relationship? I mean, things just really worked out well for us. Um, at the same time that I was taking over and, and starting to run Toro, um, Ken's wife was pregnant. So there was like, they were having a child and there was a lot of change going on in their life. And like Ken pulled pulled out of being at the restaurant like 24 hours a day to getting ready for Verven. And I think that that and uh, his patience with me was really important. It was really important for the success of how we work together. What did you learn about patience? Just observing his patience with you. Oh, I don't know. It's a tough one. Yeah. I don't think I, I mean, I don't know how to answer that. Well, patience is an incredible skill. Um, so you made this transition, uh, around, it was like 2008. You're with Toro. Um, only one Toro at this point, right? Yeah. So I took over Toro and yeah, we were, it was like 2007, actually. Yeah, we were. We had just yeah, I mean 2008. I can't remember. Yeah, the dates it all blurs together. But I think Toro, New York City, happened in 2013. Mm-hmm. So the plan. So he knew in 2008 that he was going to scale Toro, but it didn't no. happen until five years later. We didn't know. You didn't know? No. Because didn't he say, "Why don't you come help me open Toros?" Sure. No, he said, "Why don't we do some more restaurants together?" Oh, so, okay. So he didn't know it was going to be more Toros. No, at that point. we didn't. We didn't okay. know what we were going to do. So, you know, as I was, you know, we were getting acclimated and Toro was coming along, we got the opportunity to look at a space and Ken was like, hey, what do you think, you know, about, about an Italian spot? There's a wood burning pizza oven. And I said, yeah, it's going to be called Copa and it's going to have charcuterie. <laughs> we're going to get all whole animals. We're going to, this is the format of the menu. Here's half of the first menu. And he was like, oh shit. And I was like, I, I know exactly what, we, what we're going to do. And he was like, great. So we started working on that. And that was so exciting. And I love this because we just literally were talking about patience. Um, but you yourself were being very patient because, you, yeah, you were made partner, but you didn't get to like really do the visioning and create something that was a, an extension of you. You know, not I mean, the food was an extension of you at Toro at this point. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that safe to say? And if I'm wrong at any point. Uh, please correct me. Well, when, you know, when, when KO is like, Hey, come, you know, you're going to start running Toro. 
he gave me he gave me that like autonomy to to do what I wanted yeah. in a lot of ways and collaborate together and we very much changed that restaurant a lot um for the for the better I think in a lot of ways and yeah we had fun doing it but I guess the point I was trying to make is that if you're patient and you, and you take the opportunities that are given to you and you do you make the most of your opportunities and you're patient you will get that time you know where you get to like create something that's an extension of you and what you've been dreaming of envisioning. Cause it sounds like you had this in your back pocket, like Copa was something you wanted to create for a while. Yeah. I mean, that was always the, the style of restaurant that I wanted to create. Um, and I think it's just kind of happenstance that we were going to work on an Italian restaurant together. I mean, yeah. it wasn't like, he's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, here, let's do it. You know, nice. it's like, he was like, Oh, let's, this is what we have. This is what gotcha. we should do. And I just was, I was gung ho yeah. and ready to go. And it was great, you know, and we opened up Copa and started a great team there. And I remember thinking, wow, how am I going to run two restaurants that are, you know, 0.7 miles apart from each other. Yeah. And, uh, we were running back and forth a lot. And after, oh man, we opened up in December of 2009 and it's like three years later, we were looking at another location and, uh, maybe two and a half years later, we were looking at another location in the seaport area. We were thinking about doing a second Toro. Okay. And then we're like, I don't know, back and forth with the landlord. We were signed. We were about to sign an LOI and Ken goes, Oh, a friend of a friend has a space in New York. We should go down and look at it. It could be a really great opportunity to expand Toro to New York. And I was like, yeah, no fucking way are you going to open up Toro in New York. There's no way. So we went down anyways, took the, you know, took down, took the bus down of all things, um, got down, had a meeting, walked through the space. And as we're walking through the space of the old Nabisco building, we're just looking at the brick and this like marble floor and all these like, the space was just like calling out to us. We walked outside with the, our soon-to-be partners that we were basically just getting to know. Walked around the block, said goodbye to them. We walked towards the train. Uh, you know, we were going to take, I think we walked out, grabbed a slice of pizza, took the A train up, got on, and then got on Amtrak and went right back to Boston. And uh, as we were getting on the train, I looked at Ken. I go, so we're opening up a tour in New York, <laughs> huh? He goes, dude, the space looks great. Let's do it. And... You know, we started working on it. We thought it was going to be like eight months. To ended up, you know, over a year. Damn. And then we opened up Toro, New York. So any, like, uh, you know, I know you help open Eastern Standard, um, but Copa was the first that you opened as a partner mm -hmm. where you have equity in the business. Any lessons, this is your first opening. Any key lessons um, from that opening that you, you learned the hard way? I mean, I know, I mean, having somebody like Ken Orger, who at this point, would, this would have been like his seventh or eighth concept. Um so, like, what did you learn about opening? Any key lessons like that, that you can share with us? Yeah, no two openings are the same, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, you learn a lot, you know, but prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. You know, that's a big one. What's the big thing that people miss when opening that they don't consider, they don't think of, that you can you can save us from right now? Oh, man, everybody's different. I don't know. That's that's a lot of pressure to put on me right now. I mean, that's I, what I do, man. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I think that if somebody wants to open up a restaurant and they really want to be unstoppable in what they're doing, um, just get a committee together of people that you respect and bounce ideas off of them. Mm. And don't be set on any one thing. Don't be stubborn. Don't, don't, I don't know. There's just so many things that you don't do. 
but you don't know what you're not supposed to do till you've already done them. So yeah, and there is no one way, and that's one of the biggest yeah. lessons I've learned. Like the more I've learned in the restaurant industry, the more I've learned I don't know anything. And there is no one way, and it, it all depends on who you are, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, what you're trying to achieve, what's what what your core values are. Mm-hmm. There's no one way, and all you can do is get perspective because there won't you won't do it the same way twice either. And it's a matter of, of taking all these little bits of knowledge and wisdom and ideas and experiences and and literally doing something in that moment that works based off the given situation, right? That's kind of how I, it feels when I'm listening to people. I haven't done it myself yet, but it, it seems that way. It's very, you have to be malleable. Yeah, yeah, you have to be malleable and you have to have some experience. You know, one thing that I, I take from opening up Eastern Standard to opening up COPA in like that, you know, the years that bridged that, and we opened up, you know, KO Prime from, you know, from having been closed and not having been a restaurant for a while is you just you you can't do everything on your own and you, you just need to be agreeable with others. You yeah. know, sometimes I say the best way to collaborate, especially in restaurants, is kind of like improv. Yeah. It, the answer is never no, because no is a dead end. It's, it's yes and. So when somebody comes in for brunch and they say, hey, can I have veal, salt and boca? And you're like. We don't have any veal in the house. You don't say, no, you can't have it. You think, all right, what is veal salt and boca? And you think about how it's made. And you say, what do I have in the house? Well, I don't have prosciutto or sage. I don't have any veal, but I've got some chicken and I've got some other herbs. And you say, hey, you know what? I, yeah, yeah. I love veal salt and boca. Yes, that's a great idea. But... I have chicken instead that's really great. Or I have pork scallopini. And you give somebody an option rather than just shutting them down. Mm. And, I mean, that's just one analogy to it. But being able to do that with everybody is so important. Yeah, there, there's one thing I want to bring to the conversation. Um, and we got to start moving on because I want to make sure we leave time for you to talk about your efforts and uh, with the, the Independent Restaurant Coalition, what you're doing to create awareness and advocate for restaurants. I've got to talk about that. But uh, talking to Kyle Beecham, Beecham, sorry, Kyle, talking to Kyle Beecham, uh, he, I was like, Kyle, what, what should I know about Jamie? You work for Jamie. He was your opening sous chef at where we are today, a little donkey. Um, he, the one thing he wanted me to know about you is how much opportunity you create for your people. And he gave me an example. He said there was a server that came on at Toro or at Toro. Uh, then he, uh, then she was your AGM at Little Donkey for the opening. And then she became the GM partner at Little Donkey, eventually. Right? Is, is this right? Is this? Am, am I getting the story right? I'm like you're off a little bit. But correct me, please. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, Katie Chiricello. Okay. So Katie started working with us at Toro about a decade ago as a lunch server, and she worked her way up into being an AGM at Toro. We brought her over to Little Donkey to be the opening general manager. She's been the general manager since we opened, but we made her our partner um, in 2019. So any advice on putting people on this track and creating tracks for people and and knowing when people are ready to advance on this track? No, I mean, people have to put themselves on the track. It's not up to me. When people jive and they work together with you and there's longevity, it's it, it has to be a symbiotic relationship. So when you see they're on the track, what... Does, what's your what's that cue for you what's the next thing like are you talk like what's the thing we do don't fucking derail them mm. <laughs> I don't know how would you derail them who knows 
Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> you know, there's. I don't have it. You know, I'm sorry. I think I'm disappointing you. No, I can you're see not. it in you're... your face, but like, yeah, we don't. I just don't operate that way. I don't. You know, when somebody's doing well, it was all of a sudden it was like, wow, Katie's been with, working with us for a while. Oh, wow, Katie's having her birthday. It's a big one. Oh, Katie's having another birthday. Kate, how long's Katie How been many with birthdays us? Has yeah, been? <laughs> and we, you know, you just like she's, you know, she got to a point where she realized that this is what she wanted, and she made that clear. Yeah. Um, if she had said five years ago, "Hey, I'm going to leave and go somewhere else," we we would have done everything we could have done to keep her. But she didn't do that, so I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I guess the question is like when it comes down to partnership, people are either for or against it. Um, but it seems like the way that Ken works, offering you partnership, those seem that and you seem to have the same core value offering. Was it Katie? Mm-hmm. Partnership. Um, what what are your values around partnership? How do you like what do, what does that look like? Do you think that that's the ultimate way of retaining people is by offering them equity in business? I mean, I certainly would imagine that that would help retain people, but it's also about somebody who's valuable. And for me, like with Katie, it wasn't like a oh well, I don't want Katie to leave us right now. It was more of a man, Katie's part of us. Like Katie she she's part of the family she's part of the restaurant it's her life's blood here too and you know you can pay somebody you know a dollar to do something and and all all the profits you take and do whatever you want with or you can pay somebody a dollar and say that hey you're going to split the profits with us and they'll be better at it yeah maybe but you can also say hey how do we earn a dollar together and then they feel more invested and they feel better about it. And Katie has such great ideas, you know, it just, yeah. it wasn't like a, it wasn't a planned anything. It just naturally happened. I love it. Um, the other thing I was really looking forward to having a discussion about today, uh, I, you mentioned in the first interview that you're dyslexic. I'm also dyslexic. I used to be super self-conscious about my dyslexia. Obviously I was a commercial pilot, so it was a little bit more of a issue for me. Uh, but how have you dealt with dyslexia in the industry? Um, anything that would be, I mean, is, is it, a, is, is it a challenge for you? Was it a challenge getting started? Have you found other ways to cope? Well, the hardest part about about my dyslexia is getting made fun of for how terribly misspelled my emails are. Like, I, I have the same issue. I, and to this day, I'm afraid to send stuff out because I'm so worried about looking like an idiot overwritten language because I just don't see things. I literally just don't see things. And you feel like people are going to judge you. But I think that might hold people back of, of sending the email because they're afraid of being judged. So what's, what's, how, are you, how do you overcome that fear of being judged or being made fun of? I was over it till you just brought it up. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, it's 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 like being born without a thumb. There's nothing you can do to get your thumb to grow back. You yeah. don't have a thumb. Yeah. Right. So I'm dyslexic. I read as much as I can. I know it takes me longer to read things. When I write things out, I usually have to write them out twice. Um, I have now defaulted to figuring out how to do most of my work by a computer. Even if I'm working with somebody in the restaurant, I'll, they'll say, oh, what's the menu for tonight? And instead of taking a menu and writing it out, I type it out because then I can reread my thoughts, mm. whereas I don't reread my handwriting. Sometimes I can't reread my handwriting because it looks like hieroglyphics. I get you, man. Um, and, you, and if somebody's dyslexic, they shouldn't feel that there's a stigma. You know, it's... It is what it is. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's a lot of people drawn to this industry with dyslexia because I don't feel like it just kind of draws people who don't do well in other 
verticals, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but you mentioned something earlier that I think is powerful is that no two people are exactly the same. Um, and dyslexia, when you look at what you, you know, that's such a little minuscule thing compared to what you do bring to the table, that work ethic, that desire to please your, your, your ethics, your values, all these things are so powerful. And I think that like, that, that's what I think of in the back of my mind. Like don't let one little thing that is really minuscule at the end of the day, hold you back from achieving what you've achieved. I mean, you're, you're living proof that like anybody, um, can accomplish great things in this industry, regardless of the limitation. Even a broken clock's right twice a day. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Uh, anything we have not discussed up to this point before we start getting into what you're doing, I would love to create awareness around uh, Independent Restaurant Coalition. What do we need to know? Like, well, I mean, first of all, you guys closed Toro in New York City um, because of COVID-19. Like, what else has been the effect of COVID-19 on your business? Oh, man. Uh, COVID has changed everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, when COVID first started uh, to rear its ugly head in the States, uh, I was just getting married. Mm. My, my wife Song and I got married March 8th. And Congratulations. Thank you. And so I was trying to pull back for a few weeks and then I was getting ready to go on a, a honeymoon. So I was trying to like, you know, chill. And uh, I was like, man, things are weird. So... <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, things happening. You know, let's buy a lot of the stuff that we get that we know are made at factories in China, plastic wrap and sea folds and, you know, things that say made in China. Let's get let's start stockpiling some of them for the restaurant because in case the price changes yeah. as COVID. And then all of a sudden people are like, hey, there's COVID here in the United States. It was like, you know, first week of March. And we're like, oh, well, OK. All right. We'll see how this goes. And then, you know, less less than 15 days later business went from 200 covers on Friday to 40 covers on Saturday to 15 people on Sunday because people were not sure. And we started closing the restaurants to be safe. And we were like, all right, we're just going to close them for a short amount of time, see what happens. We thought it was going to be like a week. Mm. And then the same time, the governors started closing cities and states and told us we had to close the restaurants. And Toronto, New York, we just looked at what our cost was and what our rent was and... The, the, the business the and the size there, of it yeah. and it was just like it's, it's not gonna happen yeah so, uh so that was sad we you know closing a restaurant is like uh it's like euthanizing a child or a yeah. pet it's just it hurt and people are so angry about it and there's a pandemic happening so i'm taking people's finance like financial stability away we're closing so they're gonna lose health insurance it, it was just so, it was emotionally exhausting and depressing. It just really put me into a spiral. And a lot of staff hated, hate me still, and they hate Ken, and, well, you know, it's it For sucks. what? For closing? Yeah, for disappointing people. And but you got, that was out of your control. Was it, it not? Yeah, yeah it, it no. is. It is. But, you know, yeah. sometimes people look at restaurant owners and they think that we're all sitting on, on the top of our uh, our pile of money like Scrooge McDuck swimming in it. <laughs> and uh, couldn't be further from the truth. And, yeah. So we closed that restaurant. We closed Boston, uh, everything. And we kind of, like, sat tight for a week just to, like, see what we could learn. Yeah. And we learned a little bit about the disease, obviously. And how to be safer, so we started to slowly reopen. So we opened up Copa first with just takeout. Um, well, it was before phase one or two, so we weren't allowed to open for dining anyway. And uh, we opened Copa for takeout, and then slowly got Toro into takeout. And then as June hit, we started doing outdoor dining. Um, and that's when we realized that you know we were gonna be able to open up Little Donkey soon. And we opened up Little Donkey the, the last week of July uh, with outdoor dining only and takeout again. Um, 
and now we're just uh so i mean being a a a a restaurant in boston the city of boston i mean your outdoor situation has a a deadline yeah (laughs) so yeah i mean uh, i think our our outdoor patio permits expire on uh, halloween okay um there's some initiatives from the government and the governor that to to extend that i believe cambridge has already extended that to november 1st okay um we just got to hope that that happens or that the restaurant act, the save restaurant act gets passed or, or something because there's not a single scenario that I see working where we're able to keep people employed and keep paying our rents and keep the restaurants afloat without some sort of government. Help. So what will happen if the save restaurant act does get passed? What is that? Do you want to like summarize it real quick? No, too, uh, too long. Yeah. Uh, Save Restaurant Act is basically, you know, it's been co-sponsored by uh, Earl Blumenhauer from uh, from Portland, or actually from Oregon, um, and it would be a relief for us to help us basically keep people, keep staff, keep. It just, it just, we just need it. And how long will it, how long without relief? How much relief would we get? It depends on how much it gets whittled down. So I would just encourage everyone to read about it, support us and email your senators and ask them to support it as well. So it's it's just literally just getting the word out there and creating awareness around it. So like you said, uh, email your senator. If you're listening to this right now, email your senator. Uh, Is there a place to go to get copy for that email? Yeah, if you go on to saverestaurants.com through the IRC, there is a form where you can just put in your name and it'll automatically in your email address. Uh, your address and your zip code, and it'll automatically send the letter to the proper people in your district. And this is episode 744. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 744. I'll link to that, save restaurants links. And then you said there's another, I'll even link to the page on that website that help, that lets you fill out the form and automatically email your senator. Great. Um, thank you very much for the work you're doing to create awareness around this. Um, so I love this conversation. Uh, one, one question I asked before we go to the speed round, I asked all my guests this, our mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. So how have you transformed personally? Um, who are you today versus the man you were back in 99 when you're really focusing on getting your career off the ground? Well, how many years? It was 21 years ago. Yeah, that's wow. crazy. Um, I think I have tattoos old enough to drink. <laughs> um, from 99 to now, I'm way more patient, uh, way more self-aware, uh, understanding, compassionate. I think the one thing that I needed to learn from younger to now is empathy. Um, I had the drive, but sometimes that drive overtook some common sense things Mm. and uh you know everybody has their own path and if you're happy stay on your path if you're not happy address that figure out if you need to change your path Mm. but don't compare yourself to other people don't look at my path and say well by 27 he did that or oh he didn't do that till he was 27 it doesn't matter i don't compare myself to other people anymore and I hope other people don't compare themselves to me. I love it. Thank you so much, Jamie. We're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsor. And we'll be right back. You're killing it, man. 
Yes, I'm back to talk about the network. So I just want to use this time now to tell you what my vision for the network is. The uh, vision for Restaurant Unstoppable has always been to inspire, empower, and transform the industry uh, by connecting this generation's leaders with the next generation of leaders. And Restaurant Unstoppable Network is just the platform for which I'm going to be connecting you all. That's the idea behind this. And what I'm doing, instead of just trying to load as many people in there as possible, I'm reflecting back on the past seven, eight years of my life and saying, who's made the biggest impact on me? I'm reconnecting with them uh, to go deep into a specific topic or just to get them back on the show to see what's happened since we last spoke. And we're slowly going to be dripping and trickling people into this network uh, intentionally and impactfully. And that's the idea. And you can come with me by joining this network. Um, you can be a part of the conversation. You can connect with these people who've had a, a huge impact on me and you can cut through all the noise. So head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com or head over to the show notes, restaurantunstoppable.com slash 744. Find the link that says join the network, and that will be a special 30-day free trial link so you can get access to this conversation and literally join the, the conversation, ask Jamie your questions in all future conversations in the next 30 days. We're back, and the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Curiosity. Curiosity. I love it. What is your biggest weakness? Curiosity. How so? Uh, sometimes it slows me down here. You, you get it in the wormhole. You start pulling at a thread and you got to see where it goes, man. Yeah, I get you, man. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process when you're growing your team? When I'm interviewing a cook? Yeah. Passion. I love it. How do you know they have passion? You know, when, so, when I'm interviewing somebody, I ask them about things, and when I see the passion in their eyes, I start keep going on that line, mm. whether that's talking about whatever sports they played in high school, the music that they like, the food that they like, what got them into cooking, a book that they're reading. You just have to find something to connect to let people let their guard down. Yeah. And then you'll see their passion. I love it. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today? The biggest challenge today is giving uh, everybody that works for us a sense of purpose during COVID. How do you do that? You know, staying positive and trying to uh, to get people to come into the restaurant and eat, have fun, and keep people smiling. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a core value, a way to be, a way to act. Be sincere. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's common within the four walls of your restaurants, but not common throughout the industry to go above and beyond. Uh, our attention to detail with allergy protocols. Ooh. Um, where did you go to learn more about that? I'm curious on the job, man. Yep. <laughs> what's one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant operator? Oh man. Um, I love the apprentice by Jacques Pepin, but I think to give people perspective, the perfectionist, uh, the book about Bernard Loisseau. Mm, are you an audiobook listener? I am an audiobook uh, listener. <laughs> Has it changed your life, man? So with dyslexia, I found that I can get through books faster an audiobook. Um, but then I have this like insecurity about it. So I oftentimes will listen to an audiobook and read a book at the same time, mm. sometimes exactly same time. Yep. And sometimes I'll just go chapters by chapter and alternating. I have this similar approach where I'll listen to it. And if I really like it, then I'll get the book and I'll make notes and I'll really dissect it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, audiobooks, game changer for me, uh, especially if you're out there, if you also have dyslexia and you're not leveraging audiobooks, head over to audibletrial.com com slash unstoppable your first one's on me and if you use that link you're supporting the show so thank you very much uh, what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough checking in with their staff 
good one. Uh, name one service you've hired or outsourced. When I say service, I'm thinking more of a person that's good at something like a CPA or a designer or any kind of consultant or somebody who's giving, providing a service to you. Like, who are they and recommend them? Um, I would say we're working a lot with uh, Total HR Solutions to help us with HR and compliance and making sure that we're doing everything we can um, in the eyes of the law and how we can be better for our teams. Beautiful. And what is one technology your restaurants has recently adopted that's had a huge impact on operations, communication, profitability, anything along those lines? We've uh, we use a lot of a, a company called Avero for you know sn- snapshots of what the daily sales look like every day and being able to have a logbook to unify all the communication to one space. I love it. And this is the last question. It's a doozy. I feel like you're going to shake your head at me when I read it. But if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would they be? Wear a mask, wash your hands, and be fucking nice to each other. <laughs> I love it, man. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming back a second time on the show, um, making time for me. Uh, thank you, Kyle, for uh, reminding me that Jamie is amazing. We should get him back <laughs> on the show. Uh, we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who's one person you respect and admire and believe would make a great guest on the show? I think uh, if you were going to talk to somebody... Uh, I would definitely, I would suggest Chris Cosentino. Chris Cosentino. Look up, man. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And how do, what's the best way to connect if you want to come join your team, if you want to come stage? Uh, what's the best way to connect? Uh, you can find me on uh, social media. I'm pretty active on Instagram, at Jamie Biss. Um, and I look at my DMs like once a week. So if I don't follow you and you DM me, yeah, give me about a week and I'll probably get back to you if you're if you're looking for some communications. Awesome. And this is again episode seven hundred and forty four. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash seven four four. There'll be a summary of today's discussion as well as any links to tools and services recommended and books recommended and how to connect with Jamie. And uh, Jamie, I just can't say enough, man. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and your knowledge again for a second time on the show. There is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Chef Jamie Bessonette, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story, sharing your knowledge uh, for a second time on the show. And uh, I knew it was going to be good, man. Uh, I just there's so many great things that are said about you uh, echoing throughout the industry. It was an honor to sit down across the table from you and uh, to talk to you again. So uh, if you guys are interested in joining us live on August 31st, at 2 p.m. Eastern time, make sure you head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 744. That is the link to the show notes to this episode. We'll give you a special link within the show notes to get you a 30-day trial to Restaurant Unstoppable Network, which will grant you access to this top sh- or shop talk, which is what we're going to be calling them, sh- talk and shop pretty straightforward with Jamie Bissonette and all the conversations for the next 30 days. We have again, Jeremy Julian joining us to talk about the five systems, the five tech, every restaurant should be uh, prioritizing. Uh, Ari Wineswag's coming back. Last time he was talking about visioning this time. He's going to be talking about anarchy in business, AKA leaning into natural orders. Human nature in business is kind of how I translate that. And then we're going to be talking to 
Zaid Ayub from Siege Mediterranean, uh, who is, which is based out of San Francisco. And he's going to take us through his uh, process of converting a commissary kitchen into a direct to market food preparation space and the tools he's using to do that. And you guys get to ask your questions. Th these aren't just lectures. Like these are a lecture followed by at least a half hour Q and a with my guests to, to, you know, answer any questions you might have, but to literally connect you with the leaders in the restaurant industry today. That's always been the vision to inspire, empower, and transform by paying it forward. In this platform, restaurantunstoppable.com is the platform through which paying it forward is gonna is gonna take place. So I want you guys to be a part of this. It's a dollar a day to be a part of this network, and it really supports me and my mission to again inspire, empower, and transform the industry. If you found value in the seven hundred and whatever plus interviews I've published and you want to say thank you, this is the way you say thank you. Join the network, support the mission, and um, just thank you in advance. So uh, again, thank you so much, Jamie. Uh, you were a great guest. I can't wait for our conversation in just a few days, and I hope you can all join us. Again, head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 744. Find the link that says join the network. Get 30 days on me. And until next time, peace out.